Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is organizing the world's life sciences expertise and enabling biotechs to build on-demand teams. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm very excited to welcome Chris Gibson, co-founder and CEO of Recursion. Great to have you on today, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rahul. Great. So, Chris, to kick us off, would love if you could talk to us about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today. So I've always liked to operate at the interface and understand how things work. So I found my way into engineering in undergrad and then ended up moving through a variety of different paths to get to an MD-PhD program, where I was hoping to combine these worlds of engineering and medicine and eventually become a surgeon. And ended up joining the lab of a guy named Dean Lee. Dean's now the president of Merck Research Labs. He's a physician scientist and an extraordinary thinker and clinician. And the five years I spent with Dean were really transformative because I came into his lab, which focused on genetics and cellular molecular biology, with an engineering mindset. And what I pretty quickly found out was that these drawings that we put in Nature Science Cell of protein X to protein Y to protein Z are not just simplifications of nature, but in most cases, like vast oversimplifications of nature. And I think that systems engineer in me started yearning to try and uncover the underlying fingerprints and the underlying pathways of biology at some scale. And so I was able to work in Dean's lab for those five years on so many different projects with so many different laboratories we were collaborating with. And ultimately, my move into industry came as I finished my PhD and I took a leave of absence from medical school because it felt like there was an opportunity to go build. I didn't want to wait for two more years to finish med school to go do it. And Chris, now as you reflect and someone who also had been thinking about medical school but decided to go into industry, any regrets on not finishing med school based on all that you've done since then? I wouldn't say regrets. I think I would have enjoyed being a surgeon. If I could live two lives over again, I would love to go back and live that life. That said, I think I made the right choice. And ultimately at the time, it felt like high probability of success in having some intermediate level of impact as a surgeon versus maybe a lower probability of success in trying to do something that had the chance to have much broader impact if it could be successful. And ultimately, it felt like a risk worth taking to go try and build, right? Like any entrepreneur, you know, at the outset that even if what you're building feels inevitable, your path to success is very risky in the early days, but it just felt like something I would always regret if I didn't go try. And talk to us about that moment when you decided to leave the program and jump all in into recursion. How did you end up making that decision? And what were the first couple of weeks and months like after you had made that decision? I haven't thought about those details in a while, but reflecting back, I talked to a lot of people. I have entrepreneurs in my family. I knew other entrepreneurs from undergrad and graduate school, et cetera. And so I just went and chatted with folks and got their perspective. And what I never heard was regret from any of them at having tried, even among those whose startups ultimately failed or didn't have the outcome they expected. And I think the thing that finally pushed over the edge was that my little brother, when you think of your little brother as your little brother, like he finished his undergrad degree. He went for a couple of years in a different industry. And then he decided to go take this big risk and start a company. And seeing him do that, 
having been the sibling that took most of the risks growing up, like that felt like he made it clear to me that I could do the same thing. And so I just decided to go take a whirl. And ultimately I had a lot of incredible support in order to go do this. I was able to take a leave of absence from medical school, not formally drop out initially. My wife is a physician and she was already in residency moving towards fellowship. So like we had some stability in our lives there. And so I had a huge support system in order to go take this risk. A couple of years ago, actually, the university reached out and said, hey, it seems like probably at this point we should like formally withdraw you as a sabbatical medical student. I think that was like four years ago. So I was able to leverage that support and that for a very long time. And Chris, for those folks that are listening that obviously haven't founded a company, but let's say are curious about entrepreneurship and have an idea that they're really passionate about, how did you go about creating that ecosystem around you to help support you being a first-time founder, particularly in a sector as complex and entrenched as biotech tends to be? It's an extraordinarily complicated sector, and I was extraordinarily light on experience. And so the thing that I attempted to do, and sometimes it worked well and sometimes it didn't, was just to constantly surround myself and our team with folks who had different perspectives and different experiences. And so I was really lucky to get to work with Dean, who was my dissertation advisor at the time. He became a co-founder of Recursion. He had already actually founded a couple of biotech companies. He was on the board of several. So he had some insight and some folks in the industry. I had some entrepreneurs in my family who were able to introduce me to some venture capitalists who weren't really active in our industry, but they were like very safe people to talk to about how to raise funds generally. And that was super, super fantastic. And then ultimately, I reached out to a colleague of mine from undergrad who I know at the time, like not super well. And he had finished his degree, had built an e-commerce company and was going back to school in his retirement, so to speak, to actually get a PhD in bioinformatics. And he became the third co-founder of Recursion. Like We were batting ideas back and forth. And ultimately, he said, this is what I've been looking for. Let's build this together. And so I had this great group of co-founders who had individually not enough experience, but together, I think we had enough experience to go find and hire the right people in the early days. And I think it would be really hard to have been successful looking back as a first-time founder with light on experience without some pretty compelling co-founders. Yeah, certainly. And Chris, being a first-time founder, and now you've been at this for quite some time and have seen some great success that we'll talk about, being an entrepreneur and a founder can be sometimes a relatively lonely journey. Talk to us about what you've learned about yourself and handling all the ups and downs that come hand-in-hand with running a company. It's described as in the best case, a roller coaster, and in other cases, as like chewing glass staring into the abyss, as I'm sure we've all heard. And I think it's all those things. It's also extraordinary highs when you have successes with your team and you see your team succeed. And looking back, what I've learned is that I and our team are extraordinarily resilient. I've learned to separate my value from the value and the success of each project we work on. I think that's very hard for first-time founders. And especially in my case, it was basically my dissertation project from grad school that became recursion. And so the success or failure of the startup in the early days fell really closely tied to like my success or failure as a person. And I had some great mentors who helped me pull those things apart. And I would just encourage folks, 
find those mentors. They don't even have to be entrepreneurs, just great people who you respect for the way they've lived their lives, who can give you a lot of advice on just life generally, because it's like building anything hard, whether it's a company, whether it's a product, a foundation, whatever it is, it requires a lot of life lessons to do well. And so getting good mentors around you is super, super critical. Wonderful advice, Chris. This phrase of tech bio didn't really exist when you started Recursion. So I'd love if you could talk to us about when you started Recursion, how you were thinking about the intersection of tech and biotech and how the convergence of tech and biotech has evolved over the last 10 years. So rewind to 2013 when we founded Recursion. ImageNet had come out a year earlier. So like computer vision was, you know, it had been researched for decades, but it was pretty new, even in the Silicon Valley area. CRISPR was just being formulated and described at the time. So there were a lot of tools and technologies that today feel very mainstay that were not really part of the broad lexicon at the time. And we sort of had stumbled up into this intersection of technology tools, biology tools, chemistry tools through my dissertation work. And we were like, wow, this is a really compelling interface. The way these tools come together is likely to provide some really exciting gains in the near term. But there was extraordinary skepticism. This is like 2013 when it felt like 1% of the biopharma industry was open to the possibility that technology tools could actually be useful. And even fast forward to 2016, 2017, when we started raising more significant venture funding and got our first pharma deals... Even at the time, I remember going to like JP Morgan in January and literally getting laughed out of rooms on multiple occasions. And, you know, these weren't people who had specific ill will towards us as individuals, but they just didn't really see the proof points from other industries yet for how technology was going to shape the world. However, for me, you're watching what's happening with SpaceX at the time and people are leveraging technology tools to essentially re-land and reuse rockets. And you're seeing the early days of groups like Waymo and others who are doing self-driving cars. And you're seeing these early kind of nuggets of biggest shift is going to happen across so many different industries. And it becomes inevitable if you're at least a little bit fluent in technology and biology to know that there's going to be a huge shift. It's hard to know how that shift's going to happen, who's going to lead it. But it's clear there's going to be a huge shift. And if I were to critique the industry... It's not skepticism. Skepticism is good, especially for all of us as scientists. But there was really not, I would say, a growth mindset among many in the industry around just what the potential was or an openness to exploring it. And where that has shifted, I think, is really in the last three years. In the last three years, there's been this like exponential increase in the number of people who are open to the potential that technology tools, biology tools, chemistry tools are going to come together in a way that's going to accelerate all of our work to bring new medicines to patients, better medicines, faster, and hopefully one day at lower prices. And I think that's a thing that now feels inevitable to most people in the industry. And now the debate is more around how, who, when, what. And that's great. That feels like a, a fantastic shift to have witnessed from the beginning to where we are today. And it's always really tough when you're going, let's say, against the grain or have some very innovative idea that most investors haven't really thought of or wasn't part of their investment thesis. I'm curious if you think back to the first pitch you did versus some of the more recent pitches, how has your approach to positioning recursion changed? And what advice would you have for other founders that perhaps are working in an innovative space that hasn't seen much traction to date? 
One of the mistakes we made in the early days when we were first pitching investors was that we used pretty technical jargon and we stayed pretty deep in our own technical world. And so one of the first pitches I remember, which was like a resounding no, was to a very bio-heavy fund. And we pitched this platform for doing drug discovery at scale. And we talked about some of the successes we'd had. And they said, well, tell us about this first asset for this disease called cerebral cavernous malformation. And this is actually before we had even licensed that asset back into recursion from the university. It was part of my dissertation work. And we said, no, 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 don't worry about that. Let's focus on the platform. And I think we never have changed the core focus of what we're doing in recursion to appeal to investor X, Y, or Z. But what we've gotten a lot better at over time is adapting the language and the examples we use to help resonate with certain investors. So when I'm talking to a bio investor, I lean a lot more into like, here's some specific examples of programs that we've driven into the clinic from early versions of this platform. And let me tell you how some of the newer programs that we're driving towards the clinic are even more exciting based on some of the work that we've done to accelerate the platform. Whereas in the early days, I would have just focused on the platform. And I think just learning your audience, it seems like really basic advice, but looking back, we really should have just tuned our pitch for the audience. Now that's very different from tuning the value proposition for the audience. I think some founders try to be everything to everybody. And the majority of the answers you're going to get when you raise money, no matter how good you are, are no. Don't try to be everything to everybody. Be what you are, but then just make the pitch resonate with the right language for each investor type that you talk to. Great advice, Chris. If you're an HR or hiring manager in biotech, You know all too well that the pool of experts seeking full-time employment is shrinking. Filling key full-time positions can be a long, drawn-out ordeal that can slow the pace of execution and growth. Throw away the old hiring playbook. Now you can build a biotech dream team in a fraction of that time. Find out how. Visit Clora.com. Clora. Talent optimized. So with all of that context now, talk to us about where you are now in terms of building recursion and what folks have to look forward to based on all the exciting activity you have going on there. So we started out in 2013, a couple grad students and their dissertation advisor based in Salt Lake City in a literally a rented conference room and closet. We've come a long way. We're now a public company, five clinical programs. Three of those are enrolling phase two right now. We've got large collaborations with Roche Genentech, Bayer, Tempest, NVIDIA, across both bio and tech. And we have an internal pipeline, not only of programs, which we're excited about, but really new technologies, new tools, and ways to integrate compute and data, biology, chemistry, to try and bring drug discovery into the modern era. And I guess it's been quite a ride to go from three people to 500 plus people to go from private to public. Looking back, it's funny, you talked earlier about the loneliness of the CEO, the co-founder role, which is absolutely true. And every co-founder knows this. What's also interesting is to imagine like your job changing every six months. There are some things that I do that are very similar today. Hiring a candidate we really want, I still go in and try and get them excited about the future of what we're building. So there are these things that are common. But talking to public market investors is very different than talking to angels, right? Or very different than writing SBIR grants in the early days. And so just your job every six months really shifts and really transitions. And you've got to be, especially the technical founder. I think a lot of technical founders are pretty put off by 
the rate of rediscovery of their own skill set that they need. That's been like a realization over the last decade. It's just my job is pretty different every six months. And you've got to be okay with that in order to thrive, I think. And Chris, that's a wonderful point. And I think oftentimes folks aren't evolving or able to step back as quickly as they need to. I'm curious how you got there. How did you figure out, hey, here's the things that I now need to focus on and areas where perhaps I can step away? And how do you continue? What's the process you follow to to continue doing that? I'd say there's two key points there for me. The first is just try to be a student. So don't be afraid to ask for feedback, surround yourself with incredible people, ask what you could be doing better. This even goes to like your board. Building out our board is one of the things I'm most proud of our team having accomplished a recursion. And our board, we have extraordinary debates and I get feedback from the board around, here's what you need to build next in your skill set, Chris. And here's what the team needs to build next. And having a culture where people are giving this feedback, I think is extraordinarily important. And the second one is just being humble about the possibility. And this is maybe not advice to give. I've heard this is a terrible idea, but multiple times I took a step back and I said, I love what I'm doing, but the most important thing to me is the success of the mission. And I went to our investors when we were private and I said, am I still the right person to be leading this organization? I had a few moments. I wouldn't say like moments of pure crisis, but like the staring into the abyss moments where I said, I wonder if somebody else would be better. And I was just super open about that and ultimately had great conversations with the team, the investors, the board, our senior leadership, and came to the conclusion that I was still the right person to lead the company. But I think that sometimes people get too tied up in like being the CEO or something like that. And ultimately be tied up in accomplishing the mission. And as a co-founder, at least, your mission should be, what do I do to support us achieving our goals as a company. And I don't care what role I have to play in order to make that happen. And I think I see sometimes some co-founder CEOs who probably would be a lot happier as co-founder CSOs or co-founder CTOs. And for me, I've loved the CEO role, but I think that there's a lot of founders who maybe are a little bit stuck on the title and haven't taken the time to reflect on whether there's a different role that would fit them better. And so just step back, get that advice, get that feedback from people you trust and be open to that possibility. And pulling on that thread of needing to take a step back often, obviously the capital markets have changed quite a bit since recursion went public. Everyone's been feeling the effects of what's been going on across the sector. Talk to us about how the current markets have informed how you're operating at recursion. We're recording this end of November a thousand plus companies have had layoffs right now. There's a pretty significant correction that's been underway for quite some time. So how are you approaching what's going on in the market as it relates to how you operate at Recursion? You know, it's always hard to time the market, but we were really fortunate to have some extraordinary advisors and mentors and board members. Our board chair, Martin Chavez, was the CFO, CIO of Goldman Sachs. He's very looped into markets in a way that we, in early 2022, we had a sense that this was going to be pretty big. The markets had already declined in biotech pretty substantially, at least on the public side. Private was still going pretty strong. And we actually basically stopped almost all hiring a recursion in January of 2022. And I think making the move early, knowing that we could always start hiring again, is one of the the best things that we were able to do to position ourselves to slow growth. Because leading up to that point, it was a growth at all costs mentality, even in many of the biotech platform companies. And so being able to pull off the gas pedal, not hit the just coast, 
was super, super helpful. And we reprioritized our internal portfolio around oncology for the most part where we could drive programs faster. We trimmed some of our internal portfolio and we really just focused as a team on disciplined, thoughtful execution and delivery without losing some of the innovation and exciting new projects that had made the company successful to that time. And what that's meant is that we've been able to transit what I think now in the public markets is one of, if not the deepest, longest, worst declines in public biotech funding history in a way that has been maybe less painful than at other organizations. But that's because we acted early. And that's the best advice I can give. Like everybody regrets not acting earlier when these things get bad and you can always hire more people. It's a lot harder to let people go. And so we've been able to keep the company more or less flat during the last two years. And that means we've executed well. We've got clinical programs enrolling now. We've got partnerships that are putting us in a position where if there's a shift in the macro where biotech becomes more favorable, I think we'll have a lot of exciting proof points for investors to look at as they start thinking about this as a place to put their money The private markets are a little bit delayed. They didn't really feel the pain it felt like to me from founders until maybe the summer, fall of 22. And maybe they'll be a little bit slower to accelerate back even as public markets move into the space. And in private markets, talking to founders there, it's very like have or have not. There are really good companies who have continued to raise pretty substantial, exciting rounds of capital. And there are other companies who are very exciting, at least from my perspective, who've had not even slip-ups, but they've had just the littlest tinge of like momentum loss and there's nothing. It's just crickets for them. And so I think we're seeing now, not only in the public markets, but a ton of these private companies going under or just getting themselves into rough places. I think in general, this is probably not a bad thing. Markets go through cycles. It's good for all of us to operate a company through these cycles. It has meant that we've slowed down some of our growth and innovation. I think that's true of many companies in the space. And I think it'll make us and everybody else who survives this much stronger as we come out the other side. And Chris, you decided to build recursion initially in Utah. I imagine that ecosystem has changed quite a bit over the last 10 years. For those of us that are not familiar, talk to us about the biotech innovation ecosystem in Utah. I was a grad student here. My wife was working here. We had a young family when we started recursion. And so initially it was like, this is super risky. Why don't I start this? And then maybe we'll move the company when we get a little bit bigger. We found two things though. There was a pretty strong diagnostics sector in Utah, groups like BioFire now, BioMiru, many of the medical device companies have large groups here. And so it wasn't entirely impossible to find people with familiarity, at least in some areas of hiring. And then the tech industry was reasonably good here. A lot of software as a service companies, fintech companies, and we could pull engineers and others. Where we really had a hard time in the early days was like experienced biopharma folks. And there were, you know, Dave Beers and Tolero, a few NPS Pharmaceuticals was founded and built here. So there were some places we could get early employees that were fantastic. But as we started to scale the company in 2016, 2017, that became a challenge. And ultimately, we decided to keep the company here because we appreciated the space to do two things. One was to build outside of an echo chamber, and we could still fly to the echo chamber in the Bay or in Boston to get insight, to get feedback, to hear critiques of our work. But then we could come back and in a way, just be left alone to build, which was helpful. And the second was we had an opportunity, and I think a very willing community around us to help build, at least help to start build or build off of some early successes of community in biopharma here. And that meant that we could like maybe have a little bit more say in how things were being built and what like the community here valued. And so ultimately, every decision you make has trade-offs. 
the trade-off for us is we had, as a 200-person company, we had 10 people on our talent and recruitment team because we were doing a lot of flying out to the bay and convincing people to come join us and move here. So that was a lot of work. But once people got here, they stayed. And our turnover rate was drastically lower than many of the peers that I was talking to in the Bay or Cambridge. It's not like people didn't have us. But if somebody moved here and then all of a sudden there was a bump in the road, it wasn't like they had six other offers from six shiny, exciting companies the next moment where they didn't have to move. Like They had to make a decision with their family. So you got people who were a little bit more just I think committed to the vision and the mission of the company. They weren't doing the one year kind of vest and move on. And so I think ultimately it paid dividends. And now we've helped build Biohive, which is like a community here that's growing really quickly. And it's been really rewarding to be a part of that. But we're not only growing in Salt Lake. We've got offices in Toronto, Montreal, the Bay Area as well. But we like to be in up and coming cities where we can leave our fingerprint on the community, maybe more than trying to edge our way into really built out communities where maybe we wouldn't have a lot of say in how to build things. And how have you been approaching the distributed nature of the team that you have in place? I understand you have offices in several locations, several geographies. How has that been going and any lessons learned around on building culture during the pandemic and having a distributed team now after the pandemic as well? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the biggest learnings has been to have an extraordinary Bite lead. So when we built our Toronto office, we hired Jordan Christensen, who's our VP of engineering. And he's just been such an extraordinary leader, somebody who believes deeply in the value of culture and who had a tremendous amount of experience growing large software engineering teams at other businesses. And so having somebody like that leading your build out in a new city is super, super critical. I think going without that is super, really challenging. And the second is for the leadership team, you've got to make the investment to go and physically be there. Obviously, during the pandemic, that was more challenging. But now I try to get to our offices in Toronto, Montreal, the Bay Area on a quarterly cadence, if not more. And it varies. Sometimes you end up three times in a quarter in one office and not for two or three quarters in another. But finding ways to be physically with your team on some regular cadence, I think, is really important for our remote teams, inviting them in for on-sites, off-sites, on a quarterly cadence, getting teams who are more remote together I don't believe you can build a super compelling team at our scale in our industry where you have so many different disciplines having to work together without people being physically together a good bit. And that's a pretty old school belief for a tech bio company. That's been my experience today. You need these people to get together in the same room and especially at a whiteboard on a super regular cadence. Mm. And I'm curious, how has recruiting for software engineers been going, particularly those, I don't know if you hire folks that don't have biotech experience previously, any surprises there in terms of folks that perhaps don't want to build another delivery app, but want to go build a, a biotech? There are so many folks in that industry who are seeking mission-driven companies. And a huge tool we all have working in biopharma or healthcare generally is the mission that we're delivering against. So if you're a compelling company in that space, you have a huge opportunity to hire these folks. What I think is interesting is like data scientists and software engineers are experts at learning new languages. You act literally learning new languages. They're coding languages, but they are very good in many cases that some of these people know seven, eight, 10 coding languages. And many of them also know seven, eight or 10 spoken languages. They are experts at learning these languages and translating between them. If you give them the resources and you create a culture where it is okay for me or someone else to step out of delivery work to spend some time educating them about biology and to get educated about coding. 
I think it makes tremendous sense to hire these people, even without bio experience. They learn so fast. Some of the best computational biologists we have at Recursion were not trained in biology before they joined. And now there's more universities that are actually training people at the interface. So you can get great people who are trained in both. But in 2013, 2014, 2015, just software engineers and data scientists who had a growth mindset were beating out some of these more traditionally trained people pretty regularly in their understanding of the field. So I think it's great if you can find them and bring them in. And it's been maybe one of our biggest unlocks is creating a culture where a software engineer, a data scientist, a biologist, and a chemist are all equally accountable for a project, a program. And that could be a drug, right? You have a data scientist who can raise their hand and she can say, look, I don't actually think we should take this forward because I'm not convinced. I know you believe in this pathway, but the statistics are not convincing me this is worth driving forward. Having that kind of debate early at a company like ours has created a culture where I think it's one of our biggest competitive advantages to have people from these diverse backgrounds really deeply participating in so many different cross-functional projects. And on the point of collaborating with others, you mentioned partnerships previously. I'm curious, how have you been viewing partnerships in this environment? And what's your mental model for thinking about doing things solo versus partnering up with others and how you make that decision? For us, it's pretty straightforward. We want to partner with people where we believe we can be transformative influences for them and they can be transformative influences for us. So in our biotech partnerships with Bayer and then Roche Genentech, we wanted to go after some big intractable areas of biology like neuroscience. But we knew as a smaller company with limited resources, we would have to either go after one disease, like we're going all in on Alzheimer's, which wasn't really our model, or we would just very quickly get overwhelmed, especially if we drove programs towards the clinic. And so who's really a leader in this field of neuroscience? We saw Aviva Gav, Roche Genetech, Genetech specifically as a computational biologist. And we said, this is an opportunity where we can bring our expertise to a partnership and accelerate Genentech, accelerate Roche, very vast appetite for tech bio. I think they very deeply believe it's the future, but then also where we can go after an area like neuroscience, where we wouldn't be able to do it without a partner like that. And so we looked for those opportunities, signed that collaboration on the tech side, partnered with NVIDIA to help build out our compute and understand high-performance computing and scale distributed computing. And then more recently also, you know, NASA partnership with Tempest, where we're bringing in the incredible data set in clinical oncology that they've built and adding that to the laboratory data sets that we've built to put forward in reverse genetics into a virtuous cycle. So we just look for those opportunities. What can we do with somebody we couldn't do without them? And then we go pretty hard to try and turn that into a collaboration. Now, switching gears, Chris, we've talked a lot about what's going on across the biosec sector now. I'd love to hear from you if there's any particular challenges and opportunities that you're seeing across the sector that we should make sure we address today? I know we talked about a couple before we started recording, but would love your thoughts on where you see biotech heading over the next two to three decades. I think you talked about one of the near-term ones, which is capital markets. That's certainly a challenge for many folks. And over the next decade or two, what I'm really excited about is watching how clinical development and regulatory sciences are going to be influenced with technology. Recursion has been really focused on kind of the target discovery, hit discovery, lead optimization side of the funnel. We're starting to do work in the clinical development side of things. I was mentioning before the show, like the FDA 
put out a white paper, I believe in May, talking about the ways that they want to use AI and they want to collaborate around AI. They've sought input from the industry about how we all feel that we could use AI in discovery and development. But it's interesting. They were talking about the use of LLMs for evaluating filings really well before I think most of the large pharma companies had a concerted effort to think about some of these tools to increase the efficiency of the work they do. And I think sometimes the FDA doesn't get a rap for being the leading indicator. They get sort of a reputation for being a lagging indicator. And kudos to them for being progressive in their thinking. We talked earlier about this shift over the last 36 months. What's super interesting to me is that AlphaFold should have been the wake-up call for the biopharma industry, that like technology was going to fundamentally change things. And even when it came out, people were writing, well, understanding how proteins fold one at a time isn't really that big a deal, even though people have been talking about protein folding as like the holy grail for decades. And then even when they started predicting the protein structures of like hundreds of millions of proteins, a lot of those structures aren't predicted perfectly. And then even when they've done that, it's just like this, well, and that was a wake-up call. It didn't mean every problem was solved. It didn't mean drug discovery would be a snap of the fingers overnight in five years or 10 years, but it was a wake-up call for our industry about where things were headed. And interestingly enough, what seemed to have been a bigger wake-up call was ChatGPT. Even though it's not really all that useful in the context of biology per se, especially with the hallucinations you get from large language models, you have to use it in very specific ways. I don't know. There's something fundamental about human language that spoke to the right executives and board members and leaders of our industry. That was the thing that seems to have shifted them. And now every big pharma company is really deeply thinking about how they're going to use technology. Some are half a decade ahead. Companies like Moderna, Bayer, Roche Genentech have been making bets for half decade in this space. There's others who today are just starting to enter their thinking. And I think what we're going to see over the next decade or two decades is a pretty big shuffling of the incumbent biopharma. There's going to be some new entrants like Moderna, maybe companies like Recursion who become the large companies of the future. There's going to be some companies maybe like a Roche Genentech or a Bayer who can reinvent themselves quickly. And I think there's going to be some laggards who maybe are flying high today, but are so slow to adopt these tools that are on such an exponential path that ultimately in five years, they could find themselves on a really downward trajectory. And I think not super often that you see that big a change in the industry. Probably for biopharma, it was probably you know Genentech and the biotech revolution 20, 30, 40 years ago, that that was the time when we've last seen this big a shuffle. And it feels very likely the next decade, we're going to see it again. Yeah, I certainly agree, Chris. On that point, I'm curious if there's a truth or something that you believe to be true as it relates to, let's say, entrepreneurship, leadership, or biotech that very few people agree with you on, but you feel fairly confident about. Well, that would have been a super easy question to answer until three years ago. It was just the inevitability of technology in our industry. Many more people agree now. I guess, I don't know how controversial this will be, but I think one truth is that you need not be an experienced biopharma executive to build a company in this space. There have been some pretty prominent folks who have said that you basically shouldn't try. If you're a grad student and you're coming out of grad school and you have an idea, you shouldn't try. You should go to the industry for 10 or 20 years. And reality is, statistically, they're right. Most of the companies that are going to be successful are driven by people who have had a lot of success in the industry previously. But you will learn so much from trying, regardless of whether your company is successful or not. You will learn so much from building. I think it's important for people to cast their net and go try. If they have the right risk appetite, 
failure at building something is not failure outright. It's actually a tremendous amount of learning. And it happens in our industry all the time. You see some of the tabloids in our industry talking about tech bio, doom and gloom all the time. But look at our industry. 90% of drugs we put in the clinic ultimately fail. And it's incredible scientists working in some cases for decades on these projects. Failure is part of the fabric of our industry. It's how we learn. And yet, very discouraging of young founders trying something in the biotech space, in the biopharma space. I believe that's bad advice. At the same time, I wouldn't say everybody who goes and tries to start something is going to be successful. The vast majority are going to not end up building the thing they hope to build, but they're going to learn so much in the process that we could accelerate our industry if we gave them a bit more encouragement. Yeah. I read something where the founder of NVIDIA recently said that I wouldn't start NVIDIA again, given all that we've had to go through over the last 10 plus years. And you'd have to be pretty crazy to try to start a company. I'm curious how you feel about your journey. So I had a chance to meet Jensen recently as we were negotiating our collaboration with them. And he said something also interesting, which is the natural state of every company is dying. And he tries to teach his team, like, we are 30 days away from being knocked off our block. And that matters a lot as your company starts to fly high. And I think many of us who've spent like a decade or two decades or three decades as Jensen has building a company wouldn't have the energy to go back and do it again. But I bet any of us put back in a different scenario in the early days still would have gone and started a company. Like There's this innate need to build and many of us have it. And if you have that and you have an idea and you feel that the world isn't addressing it, there's this opportunity. Yeah, 10, 20, 30 years in, you may not want to go back and start it all over again. But I bet each of us given the chance to go back to our original founding story, even for those who built something that failed, I bet all of us would still do it again. You can't help it. It's a part of you. So I think Jensen was saying he wouldn't do it again, but I don't think he was telling young entrepreneurs not to go try. Yeah, I agree. Just be prepared for the road ahead. A lot of days are pretty rough, but that's not different from a lot of what we do, like working in science. Science is hard. A lot of experiments fail, but like things that matter a lot should be hard. That's why they matter. Yeah, certainly. Before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you to reflect one last time. And knowing all that you now know and have experienced building recursion, leaving your program 10 plus years ago, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self? So this is going to be illustrative of how little I knew at the time, because this is probably pretty obvious advice. But this one goes out to all the early, young, maybe first-time technical founders in the space. And that is how critical the people, the environment, the culture are. As technical folks, we work on scientific problems, engineering problems where there is a truth, right? There is a protein that binds another protein and you can determine the binding characteristics and like it has truth. People are much, as I say, squishier. People have truths. Those truths change. They're different for everyone. And I undervalue that too much too early. And some of the closest times we've ever been to failure have been from me undervaluing the importance of spending time with people, leading people, managing people, focusing on the culture. I think compared to many other companies, we've actually done that well and we've invested more time. But it wasn't really until 2018 where I realized that it wasn't just like optional. It was you would not be successful without extraordinary focus there. And it was a coach of mine who helped me see that. And I've focused a lot more on it since. So I would just say, especially the technical founders, do not underestimate the challenge, the excitement, and the importance of focusing on the people that make up your organization. Probably obvious to all the other entrepreneurs who've been doing this for a long time. But for me, didn't feel as obvious at the time. 
Yeah. Wonderful advice, Chris. Chris, we've covered a lot in a short period of time. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your own personal story and all the exciting work that you and your colleagues are pursuing at Recursion. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.